Hello dear listener, Justin here. I'm afraid the audio of this episode isn't as good as usual because we had to rely on the backup recording, so I'm really sorry about that. I'm also going to give you a content note here, in particular for Natalie's story, where there is a description of a rape. There aren't really graphic details, and in the story, Natalie has ambivalent feelings about it, but I just wanted to give you a heads up in case you want to skip it. It's around 28 minutes in, and if you skip ahead for two minutes from when you first hear Joy mention Natalie's name, then you'll miss it. Okay, so that's two minutes from when Joy first mentions Natalie's name, and then you'll miss it. Um, Thank you so much for... Uh, downloading and listening and I hope you enjoy it it's a long one but hopefully you'll find it really really interesting bye hello and welcome to culture sex relationships with me Justin Hancock I'm delighted today to be joined by Dr Joy Townsend hello Joy hi Justin Joy has come on to talk about her thesis which I've read uh, called her sexual self a narrative investigation of young women's sexual subjectivities So listeners to the show will know that we've always tried to grapple with questions of the personal and the political, the structural and cultural messages that we receive and the possibilities for agency and freedom to choose within this. It's really hard to articulate and sometimes it means that we have to treat them separately or as things happening in parallel or simply just pointing out that in a neoliberal world built on scarcity, that our capacity to choose or to be embodied or or to have joy or to, to feel our feelings is unevenly distributed. And Joy's thesis, Her Sexual Self, really gets to the heart of this dichotomy and shows actually how our everyday experiences might be sites of valuable understanding about where our self has the capacity to be drawn and redrawn. And I've just read it over the last couple of days and um, it's really great and I've learned so much and my brain's a bit full. So thank you so much, Joy, for writing it and thank you so much for coming on the show. No, it's great to be here and thanks for reading. I guess, um, just first of all, tell us a little bit about yourself um, and uh, as a, a researcher, you're a researcher, an educator, writer, but also how you came to do this work in the first place and, and, what, and what brought you to writing about sexual subjectivity before we get on to explaining what that is. Yeah, yeah. So um, I'll start back. So, yeah, I'll just start with what brought me to my to my research, my PhD, and then I can talk about what I've done since then professionally mm-hmm. if you'd like. But um, I was studying social work at university. So I'd done the standard Australian thing where you finish school. I wasn't very academic at school at all. Mm-hmm. Um, finished school, I just wanted to travel. So I went to West Africa and then I actually lived in England for a couple of years. And then I came back to Australia got a job at our social services agency called Centrelink Mm -hmm. and uh, that job was amazing because I just had all of these I was a case manager um, a 19 year old case manager and I was managing um, middle-aged men with an addiction problem that Mm -hmm. had been long-term unemployed so just interviewing so many you know some of the most amazing eclectic personalities um and it made me realize that I really love that interview dynamic mm-hmm. um and I loved I had a real heart for people that I guess you could say were struggling with life mm. and so I thought you know what I'm going to study social work so I moved to Sydney and I studied social work at Sydney Uni mm-hmm. about a year into that course I was loving it a year into that course I found out that I was pregnant um and it was a massive 
shock. I was mm-hmm. 22 at the time, which is quite young to have a baby here in Australia. Um, but I'd been with my partner since I was a teenager. We were um, in a very kind of stable relationship and we decided to go ahead and have this baby. Um, but I got crazy sick and it meant I had to drop out of university. So fast forward a year and a half and I'm at home with my little girl, Lila, full time, bored out of my brain, thinking, what the hell am I going to do with my life? Um, and so I decided to enroll in the local university there. They didn't have social work, but they had this thing called sociology. And I was like, what is that? Sounds kind of similar. Maybe they'll give me some credit for my social work subjects. And enrolled and I studied gender studies for the first time ever and it blew my mind. I think for me, being a young mum, I'd also grown up in a very religious family. Both my my parents were missionaries um, and so I spent some of my time over in West Africa as a missionary kid and in the church. And so I'm at that time I had probably a fairly loose relationship with the kind of Christian faith, but it was still definitely informed my worldview. And mm-hmm. here I was, you know, with this little baby and I was no longer just a woman, a young woman. I was now a young mother. And so gender studies just, I just loved it. It was like uh, it was like someone was helping me unpack my, the world and mm-hmm. help me make sense of what I was experiencing in real time. And so I ended up doing really well in that course. And at the end of it, someone said to me, hey, do you want to do, one of the lecturers said, do you want to study um, honours, which is the year, I don't know if you have that in the UK. It's like the year you do before you do a PhD. Oh, like a master's? Sort of like a master's, yeah. Um, And for that, you just get to do any research projects, like a really mini PhD. And I said, yeah, that sounds good. Um, And so he was going to supervise me and I decided to do it on pornography. Mm -hmm. And I was really interested to interview young women, heterosexual women, whose male partners used pornography regularly. I wanted Mm -hmm. to ask these women how they experienced that. What were the impacts on their relationship? Um, So I did that. And it was a fascinating year. I loved the interview experience again. I did these really long, in-depth interviews with young women and I learned lots of things. Um, And I guess the thing to remember is given that I came at this work as a, you know, from a fairly conservative background, I was extremely curious myself. Hmm. Um, And so, and I'm also interviewing women who are my own age. That was my experience both for my honours thesis and my PhD thesis, mm-hmm. which I think really, I don't know, so there's something different I think that that makes mm-hmm. when it comes to research if you're, you're living what you're researching. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the thing that came out of that little honours research thesis was, wow, these young women impressed me so much with this, like, sense that they had of who they were as a sexual being Mm -hmm. I was like where did they get that from and what even is that you know Mm -hmm. like how is it that we come to know our come to have a sense of self attached to our sexuality Mm -hmm. um and I wanted to explore that more and so I ended up scoring really well in that honors thesis and given a, a um I was given a scholarship to do a PhD and so 
when I was looking into what do I do my PhD on, um, I thought that's it. I'm going to study whatever that thing is called, Mm. which is the sense of self attached to your sexuality. It turns out it's called sexual subjectivity. Mm. Um, And that's what my PhD is all about. Yeah. And it's uh, it's so interesting. I think it's a really just when I was reading it, I was thinking, um, I was really so there's uh, a lot of theory that I was really loving I'm lapping up all the theory at the moment because I've never done any academic work at all myself so I'm kind of absorbing podcasts and uh, papers and books at the moment to try to to kind of I guess like background my stuff which is you know most of my learning has come from the young people I've worked with um, and so the thing that was really um landing with me was that these interviews you were doing with these young women were really uh revealing a huge amounts of 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 the work that we that we probably all do around how we understand this stuff and that that in itself is really informative for us as as practitioners educators academics researchers and that too often you know when we get just stuck in um in talking about theory and and discourse which is that well that's a, a, a term we actually need to use. Um, we'll explain like, how we use that term in a minute. But that often mm. just gets missing, that how people yeah. actually do it. And and it kind of, yeah. and it's very important that that does not get missed at all. It's very important that actually we, we centre that within the within the kind of cultural framework within which it sits. And so that's what this is all about, really, as I explained in the intro. So... Is it possible to? I know that the the whole thesis is about this, but is it possible to kind of to give us a starting point for for where we get to about sexual subjectivity and, and what it means to be our sexual self? I know that this is this is this is something that there's been a lot of work around, um, and that there is a sense of there being like a I can't remember whose work it was, but there was there was a, a work where it was almost as if you would tick a series of boxes and then mm. you would, and then that would kind of demonstrate that someone is a sexual self and uh, which is kind mm. of struck me as being not very helpful, but can you, can you give us a starting yeah. point for, for what we talk about when we talk about sexual subjectivity? Yeah. So the simplest way that I explain it is people are quite familiar with saying, you know, we all have an emotional self. We have a, you know, a mental self, a physical self, Um, And then I say we also have a sexual self and it's someone that we need to to get to know and to look after um, and nurture and the process of getting to know our sexual selves can be lifelong, you know, and it can be a process where we are inventing and reinventing whoever that person or people are. Um, And... It's a chaotic process. So that was something I love what you just said then, you know, that so often the process is um, not documented or explored when we talk or teach anything to do with sex education. Mm-hmm. When um, actually, you know, that the process is like it's can be something that's very um, complex and deep Um, it's embodied it's also you know theoretical like Mm. particularly nothing it's going to look different for everyone obviously and that was a big part of my interviews with these young women was just you know every single interview it was like tell me what your process is like because I bet you it's so different to the girl I just interviewed two weeks ago Mm. um 
And, yeah, and I guess what you're saying about that research, so traditionally sexual subjectivity, you know, there, there is not a lot in um, when I started my PhD, there wasn't a lot of research on sexual subjectivity, but what was out there was this very quite kind of simplistic definition of sexual subjectivity, mm. which is that it's a good thing if someone someone either has sexual subjectivity or they don't have it, which is mm. just weird, right? It's like yeah. someone either has their selfhood or they don't have a selfhood. Mm. Um, and so they'd come up with this like, uh, instrument that they used to measure how much sexual subjectivity young women had and they had to young women had to check you know a list of like 50 boxes and that would give them a rating for how much sexual subjectivity they had <clears throat> and that just seemed like total bollocks to me like I just couldn't because my experience as a young woman when I was doing this research initially was well some days I feel like I have a very strong sense of myself as a sexual person and other days it's non-existent or some, you know, they, I go through seasons in my life where I'll invest a lot of time in learning about that part of myself and other seasons where it doesn't feel as relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I really wanted to find a, um, a theory or I guess some, some people that were thinking about sexual subjectivity as a fluid concept. Mm-hmm. that would capture the fact that this is something that changes over the course of our life, mm-hmm. not in a um, chronological way over the course of our life, mind you, because there are some people that think of it like that, mm-hmm. um, but actually that this is, yeah, very fluid and um, that in some ways, and I guess this is where I'm going to get to with with Foucault and why I landed with his work, so mm-hmm. his later work was such a good fit, but mm-hmm. um it's this mix of sexual subjectivity being something that we ourselves autonomously do and drive, mm. but also that um, culture puts on us, puts parameters around us, mm. which dictate the ways that we interact with our sexual self. Um, mm. And so, yeah, that kind of there being, you know, a sense of it being both determined and also something that we actively are a part of um creating yeah and that's the that's the really uh the point of nuance that the whole thesis is really trying to get to isn't it it's the it's that we are not just determined by culture and uh circumstances around us and but also that we're not entirely just near just liberal slash neoliberal subjects just making Mm. all of our choices whatever choice we want to just uh, and also being the sense of that as being an entirely kind of uh, boundaried individual who knows exactly what it is we want at all times, making choices f- for ourselves mm. with other people. Catherine Angel kind of talks about that in her latest book, um, Tomorrow Sex Will Be Good Again, which is also from Foucault. She was on the podcast recently and she talks about, you know, how fraught it is uh, to be uh, to be a woman being put in a position of being uh feeling like you have to know yourself in order to do anything yeah. and what a what a, a a double bind that puts women in but also that it doesn't account for the various ambivalences that we have or sometimes we might kind of know what we want or sometimes we don't or sometimes we don't mm. know what we don't know or sometimes we don't know what we might want or and maybe it's mm-hmm. not even about wants and desires and your work really gets to that in a really interesting way you mentioned Foucault. I think a lot of times when, uh, and certainly when Foucault has been mentioned on the podcast before, I guess we're talking about the ways in which we might um, discipline or monitor ourselves and that our 
and that there that our and in in a way that our bodies are both a, a site of uh some kind of um power uh, as well as uh ways in which i'm not articulating this very well but ways in which that out that us as individuals uh both our power as well as being surrounded by power and culture but the you kind of draw on his later work which is really important i think and really interesting when you talk about the technology of self so i think a lot of people who have heard about food and sex would have heard that um about uh, discourse and that we are that we are trapped within the the norms and the and the regulations and the social scripts that society gives us but you talk about mm-hmm. his work and of the technology of the self can you talk can you talk a bit about that because i think our listeners would find that really interesting um yeah so um it is his later work so a lot of foucault's most of foucault's work is like you were describing you know this sense that we have you know, that power's all around us and that we don't have much agency, I guess, when it comes to, you know, how we position ourselves and express ourselves. But he has has this, you know, really, if I can use the word lovely, um, quite nuanced work later on in his life, which is essentially about the relationship that we humans have with ourselves. Mm. And he talks about practices of the self or it's also called technologies of the self which are the things that we do um, autonomously within the the parameters and the sort of domains of of wider society and cultural influence uh, to become who who we are Mm. and it's he spoke of it as a never completed process of becoming um, and those t- that word I used before, the idea of invention and reinvention, is a, is um, from borrowed from Foucault. That's his description of this process of, you know, the ethics of the self. And it, it sort of draws on. Um, I might just go to that part in the thesis. Mm-hmm. He, he it draws on very ancient um, observation of the way the Greeks lived their life, mm-hmm. which was around this kind of ethical existence. Um, sorry, do you mind if I just no, jump go for to it? it? Um, I just wanted to read one of his quotes. Um, so, yeah, it's this notion of the relationship one ought to have with oneself, which then determines how one constitutes oneself as a subject of one's own actions. It is the idea that the modern self is like an artwork and the individual is the artist shaping their self with the end result being one who is in control of themselves, one who, to quote from Foucault, belongs to himself, is his own master. Yeah, and he took inspiration from the ancient Greeks uh, whether they lived to become their own master, to know themselves, and it involved elaborate practices or what he calls techniques of the self, including self-reflection, self-knowledge, self-examination, mm. um, ensuring one doesn't become attached to things which one isn't in control of. Mm. Yeah, so I just found that when I came across that part of Foucault's work um, and, you know, this was after having done like, I don't know, I interviewed, I don't know, I think I was at that point around 30 interviews in, mm-hmm. I realized wow that's actually 
that captures so much of the process that these young women had been describing to mm. me when it, came, it comes to how they came to know and understand and, and develop this sense of self to do with their sexuality. So it was a really was a really good fit. I also knew that I, it needed to account for the pressures or the societal structures that inhibit, I guess, that, that direct in some way how, just how little freedom or the kinds of choices we might think are available to us to make. Mm. And Foucault's work accounted for that as well. So it was a really good fit for me to examine those, you know, two that dynamic, you know, mm. where how it's working in each individual's life. Mm. Before we, uh, it's really interesting, before we, we jump into a really good example of this with uh, the Navigating Normal chapter, just tell me a bit, uh, so you were doing interviews again, and these were with um, young women living in Australia, right? Just give us a, yeah. a flavour of, of, of the kinds of uh, women you were, you were working with. Yeah, so it was really important that the women... Um, they had to self-select to be interviewed. They had to sign up for two interviews. The first one was basically entirely unstructured. They would just tell me their life story with regards to their sexuality and they mm-hmm. each woman would start at a different point. Some people started when they were a little kid. Some people started in the now and worked back or mm-hmm. worked forward or whatever. Um, and so that was the first interview. And then the second interview was often a month later and that was after I'd read through the transcript and I would come back to them and say, look, these are the key themes that have come out of your, your story. Um, am I right here? And then I'd have some quite pointed questions around what those key themes were. And they might be to do with learning or um, embodied practice or pleasure. Um, there was a whole bunch of things. Normal was a big one, which we'll talk about in a minute. But yeah. um, so that was essentially the process. And I thought it would be really hard to find women who would sign up for this so they had to be 18 they had to speak English fluently um but in when I pressed live on the website where I asked people to register their interests that within 24 hours I had like 50 something women put their hand up which was just nuts um and just to give you a sense of how in-depth these interviews were some of them went for two hours each so in a standard PhD, that's a huge amount of data to end up with, you know, four hours of interview per participant. Mm. Um, it was nuts. When I finished that year of interviewing and transcribing the data, I kind of went, oh, my gosh, like, mm. how the hell am I going to make sense of this? Like, mm. what theories are out there that are going to help me organise this material <laughs> to make some kind of argument? It was like, it was like walking into some kind of dark jungle for a few years. Yeah. yeah. So, so the interviews were first, and then you the. So I guess there were they, there's probably a relationship between the two, but you were looking at how what what uh, theories were available to help you analyze the data. Uh, once yeah. You got the data. That's interesting. Yeah. So it's an approach that we call grounded theory, which is where I don't come to the interviews with the theory. I mm. basically come to the interviews with a blank page. Right. And it's my analysis of the interviews that that drives what I'm looking for in terms of the theory and and what comes out in terms of my own theories as mm-hmm. well. Um, and that was really great in terms of going into the interviews very open and curious Mm. I didn't have any agenda you know I wasn't trying to prove a statement or a a belief that I had 
No. Um, I just wanted, yeah, so that, that was really good in terms of the kind of data that I, and the kind of stories I got out, yeah. That's really interesting. It kind of, it just, it reminds me of uh, uh, existential therapy as well. The, I think that that kind of, um, I'm going to go off on a tangent. Anyway, if you want to hear more about that, me and Meg John did episodes about, uh, an episode about different <laughs> kinds of therapy. We talked about existential therapy there, dear listener. Anyway, go back through the feed and you'll find it. Anyway, so um, let's get into normal because this is something that we talk about a lot, both on the on the podcast, but also um, at my website, uh, Bish, my website for young people, is that we're surrounded by uh, by incredibly strong cultural messages about what it is to be normal uh, around sex and relationships. And those norms, those uh, cultural scripts are so strong that we can, that we, um, we can take part in them consciously or also kind of to, to a less extent, well, between a continuum of consciously to unconsciously. And also it benefits, you know, also probably ask who, who the norms benefit and, and, um, and so who, who interrogates what is normal and who has to sit outside of what is normal, who has to react against normal. There are so many problems with the idea of norms, which is, would be familiar to anyone who, who um, is familiar with Foucault's earlier work. And in terms of the, the conversations with the, the young women you were having, this came out in, in with, there are a few themes that came up, wasn't there? So around virginity, um, mm. the kind of the being up for, and the virginity and also the corollary of that, the kind of the, the affirmative kind of, um, well, the affirmative, what, what you call slums. Mm. Uh, so yeah. the... And it's almost as if there, again, there is a there was a dichotomy for the women to navigate there, a, a, an unhelpful yeah. binary, dear listener. If you're still playing the bingo card that was made for us, um, so the between you know being someone who um, who hasn't had sex and someone who then does have sex, and then what that what that woman becomes. So let's chat about this. So first of all, they're kind of quite ambivalent and different understandings of virginity and what that meant to people weren't there which was which was something that they the women were kind of yeah. talking about in really interestingly uh, can you unpack a bit of that for us yeah yeah so virginity and i say that word using um yes what do Quotes. we call those uh, Quite much, yeah we're doing quite yeah. every time we say virginity it's always just imagine us both on a zoom call with our two fingers up in the air going, it's virginity <laughs> in a verse of commerce. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of the girls started, and I call them girls affectionately. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, they weren't minors, but that's just what I came to call them. Um, so virginity was often where the girls chose to start their story in the first Mm. interview they wanted to tell me okay well I lost my virginity at this point Mm. and that was interesting in in and of itself for me um and then there was the standard you know dichotomy around virginity which on the one hand there's probably what's what most of us think of which is this idea that you know, virginity is a gift and we want to, like, save it for the for that special person in the mm. right moment. And this is very kind of heteronormative, conservative narrative around virginity. And so mm. that was there for some of the women. But what was actually more prevalent was this idea of virginity as a stigma. 
that they had to get rid of their virginity. You know, I can't believe that I'm 16 and I haven't had sex yet. Mm. How do I get rid of this thing? It's gross. You know, it's like totally damaging my social capital. Mm -hmm. Um, I just need to go and find someone to have sex with. I don't care who it is. I just got to do it and get it over with. And then I can celebrate having gotten rid of my virginity and being a sexually active young woman. Mm. Um, And so the pressure that these young women put on themselves to make sure they had sex for the first time as quickly as they could Mm. um, was really interesting to, I mean, interesting is an understatement, but it was quite confronting um, at Mm. times. And I don't know if you... Um, remember reading Natalie's story Um, and so Natalie I'll just I'll just read out her Mm -hmm. story but um, she grew up in quite a yeah religious sort of conservative um, Greek family and you know they didn't really talk about sex or anything like that and when she came to the interview she was she just sat down and said, look, I don't even know what I am. I don't know if I'm gay or if I'm straight or if I'm bi. I don't even know if I enjoy sex. I'm just trying to work it all out. And um, we had, she was one of the most fascinating um, people to interview. And But one of the stories she told me really early on was um, about the first time she had sex. So she was 16, she was stoned on a beach, which she giggled about when she told me. Um, and it was in the middle of the day with a man she'd never met before. He was a friend of a friend. And I'll just read out what how she told the story. She said, it was technically rape, except, like, I don't see it that way because, like, I don't know if I would have consented if I was sober. But, like, I had no idea what was going on. He was completely sober. It was like he'd taken nothing. He was fine. So he was taking advantage of me. Mm. I think I didn't mind it, though, like, I don't think it was, it wasn't traumatic or anything. It was fine. I remember bits, not all of it, but like it was, it was very obvious to him that I didn't know what was going on. I was just like, yay, it's over. Yay. Thank God that's out of the way. Mm. You know, virginity was never like I'm saving myself for anyone. It was just, I want to lose it preferably to someone that I don't necessarily know very well. So I don't have to see them again. Mm. Um, and that story is, I found it uncomfortable mm. to listen to and it's really stayed with me in the years since I've been, you know, since I first heard it. Mm. Um, but I think it really captures that idea and that concept of of the stigma that young women carry to do with not having had sex yet. Um, and, you know, there was another researcher, Laura Carpenter's her name, and she talked about the fact that, you know, stigmatised people have very little power Hmm. um, and they perpetually face the possibility that others will identify and expose their stigma. Hmm. Um, And so the sexual partner of a virgin may be especially well situated to identify sexual inexperience, which is stigmatising both in itself and as the ostensibly telltale sign of virginity. So I guess, you know, Natalie's story is such a good demonstration of someone who has very little power but is so determined Mm. to change her situation Mm. Um, and, and, you know, the risks that that kind of presents, I guess, for someone. Um, Yeah. So, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, that is, uh, I, that is quite a, I found that a difficult story. I think a lot of listeners might find that difficult to hear as well. Um, it's the, the narrative is so strong that about, uh, about what virginity, the stigma of virginity is so strong that mm. it to be for literally, uh, for any situation wherein that virginity is lost to be, to be read as being, I guess, is she there doing something like, is she using a technology of the self to take something out of a situation that could otherwise be read as being, you know, a not, not a good experience? Is she, is she kind of taking something mm. out of saying, you know, this is something, at, at least the stigma has gone now, or, or is it, yeah. because there are, there are ways to kind of, there are other ways to, I guess, obviate that stigma so that we could just lie about the first time we do it, I guess. And I, some women yeah some of the girls I interviewed absolutely told me that they just lied um and that was a way of protecting themselves and kind of reclaiming some power there Mm. and so yeah that could have been something that um that Natalie perhaps even that she did do up until you know in in other situations Mm. where they didn't actually end up having sex but um yeah I think too like there's this real pressure on young women to, on the one hand, you know, like there's a dichotomy again where women are either, you know, pure and subservient mm. and, you know, virgins and all only interested in long-term romantic relationships mm. that are very heteronormative. And on the other hand, there's this idea that there's the contemporary, what I call the contemporary up for it, young yeah. woman who is, you know, all-knowing and up for anything and mm. autonomous with regards to, you know, her sexual self and, and the activities that she engages in. Yeah. And that was certainly the pressure Natalie was putting on herself was, I, I need to be that. That needs to be who my sexual self is. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, this is something that, we, again, we've talked about a lot, that there does seem to be another dichotomy at play here of sex negativity versus sex positivity and yeah. without... Uh, and it seems to me that it is just trying to replace one ideology with another at times. And this is what happens. Um, yeah. Know. And again, the first thoughts I always have as an educator is to, is to think of, well, who is doing the messages, who is still giving the messages about virginity and mm. what, the, what, virgin, what virginity is, why it is meant to be important. And, you know, and, I'm looking towards a lot of sex education here, which we're going to talk about in a bit, but a lot of sex education just retells that story about virginity, also the importance of the first time, but also what it is, but also it has very, this is something else that comes up as well. I think in the, in the part where we talk about learning her sexual self, which is um, the focus always on penis and vagina sex as being mm-hmm. um, for many women, just very many women and anyone else who, well, for many women, it is it is a, a form of violence, and this mm. kind of sorry, I'm kind of jumping ahead here, but it's the it's the um, I guess that's just something to 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 think about is that when this when this is the potent when that much stigma is created around the norms, this is some of the damage that we're doing as educators if we're not yeah. unpacking some of that or allowing that to be unpacked. Um, yeah. Absolutely. But so yeah. the corollary of this as well is also to talk about 
uh, this um, the the sexual uh, the sexually confident uh, woman, the uh, I guess the Samantha from Sex and the City, uh, mm. or, or maybe everyone in Sex and the City to a certain extent, which is a program that comes up, isn't it? In in your yeah interview. yeah yeah. Uh, but, but there is this kind of idea that you're supposed to do it, but only with you're supposed to be kind of sexually confident, but only within certain parameters and certain yeah. circumstances. And so, um, tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so that's what I call this sense of being sexual but not being too sexual. And so these practices of what I did, what I termed practices of constrained agency, mm. where the the girls themselves were practicing this real, um, uh, I call it slut surveillance. Mm. Um, where they wanted to make sure that they were sexually active, but not too sexually active, that they would, you know, start slipping into that slippery slope of being labelled a slut. Mm. Um, and so I talked a lot in, in that part of the thesis about Belle because, you know, she just she was someone who from quite a young age knew herself to be quite a sexual person mm. and had had, you know, quite a, I would say a positive relationship with her sexuality. She enjoyed sex. Um, but she said that there was always this surveillance, like from coming from a part of herself that was mm. saying, hang on, wait, is that is that slutty? Like, should you really be doing that? Or should you feel bad about that? And she described it as just being absolutely exhausting. Mm-hmm. Um just the the toll that that took on her emotionally to kind of self-manage and and monitor Mm -hmm. um, a part of her life that otherwise was a real source of of joy for her, Mm. you know. Um, And so that was really interesting, like the different things that women did to, I guess, um, I was going to say use the word leverage, but just the strings that they pulled to make sure they positioned themselves in a way that walked that fine line, Mm. you know, not being too sexual. And so a a couple of them talked about, you know, having a boyfriend is ideal in this situation, you know, because a lot of these discourses are heteronormative, you know, Mm. we are talking about norms here. And so they would say, you know, if I've got a heterosexual boyfriend and, you know, he's happy and we're obviously having sex and then I'm ticking that box of being up for it and active, mm. but I'm not, you know, sliding off the scale into being too um, too active by having, like, you know, multiple sexual partners. And um, there was another, another interviewee, Holly, where she talked about, um, you know, she'd really, like, done a lot of work on her sexual self to be kind of the ideal girlfriend Mm. for her heterosexual partner um and that was a sort of a source of pride she said I sought a lot of identity through being a straight girl in the early stages of discovering my sexuality I prided myself on you know giving really great blowjobs and really typifying this what I thought was the idea of a straight girl and what straight girls should do um, and so there was a lot of social capital for Holly, as you can hear in the way she's talking about that. Um, and she talked about what I what I then say, the, you know, these are some practice of the, practices of the self that Holly does in order to really 
um, become that ultimate girlfriend. Mm. Um, what were they things like stereotypical things? She said, like, I'd always make dinner and clean and the gratification of that and the sense of belonging and feeling like I was doing the right thing all the time. She said that sexually with him, it got to a point where she felt pretty comfortable and really connected. Mm. Um, and that sh- she thinks he thought they had this rich, amazing sex life. Um, but that actually she was feeling like she wanted more from men and she wanted to have more sex, but she was afraid. Um, and she didn't really have the courage. She said, I didn't really feel like I had the courage to feel like I wanted more than him because, you know, that's so against the stereotypical way that a relationship works. The men are supposed to be going for it and, you know, have these really big sex drives Mm -hmm. and the girls are not supposed to. And so she struggled with that and she sort of, would do these practices of the self to try and kind of dumb down her just how sexual she was and I'll come back to her story later on because she ends up just kind of giving a big f you to those norms and goes on what I term this rampage yeah as do quite a few of the girls so you know we'll come to that in a sec yeah, the so so far we've kind of it's interesting because we can see where the the young women are um, can see the limitations of the of the, the practices of, of they can see the limitations of the relationship model, for example, here that they've chosen to to mm-hmm. to be able to give them the 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 freedom to choose a uh, a very sexual life that there that there also then becomes a lot at stake there that by mm-hmm. by. By doing this within um, within that kind of, uh, I guess, a normative relationship, which this is very much kind of the we're talking about the inner circle of uh, of, of um, the charmed circle of acceptable sexuality here, aren't we? When we're talking about yeah. uh, having a rampant sex life, but only within the confines of a heterosexual relationship, that there are limits yeah. to that, and then, but also limits about what you can ask for within that, because you have agreed mm-hmm. to this boundaries. Um, uh, 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 wow. normative relationship but then yeah mm. the, the the really stepping outside of that of that normativity is the rampage which is fascinating yeah so this is like yeah I guess if we're talking about sex in the city characters they there is um there is uh, Charlotte who is able to be uh uh, able to be slutty in her own way within the confines of a very normative romantic relationship but then there is Samantha who I guess might represent here like the rampage of someone who can do mm. her own sexuality outside of those um, normativities outside of that and there's the sense that it can only last for so long and everyone's trying to pull yes. Samantha in at some point you don't really talk about yeah. Sex and City this much it's just it's reminded me of this <laughs> <laughs> no you know, Dear listener, it used to be good before it all became about shoes and <laughs> the, before the films. Some of those scenes yeah. were good, I think. Yeah, um, anyway. yeah. <laughs> so tell us about oh, the rampage yeah. where they would. Yeah, yeah. So um, I called them the rampage. Sort of appeared as this meta narrative that was present in the stories of Chloe, Sue, Bell, and Holly. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and Claire and Jane. So quite a few actually, because yeah. I ended yeah. up I ended up having using thirteen of the women's stories. Mm-hmm. So twenty six interviews all up, and so that's one, two, three, four. That's six of them. Right. Yeah. So it's almost half. Yeah. Um, 
described this rampage period. Some of them called it a dating frenzy. One of them called it a series of slutty moments, a crazy month, a man journey. But for each of these women, their rampage comprised of a period of time with a beginning and an end point, whereby the women engaged in sexual behaviour that was contrary to what they ordinarily would have and resisted several of the norms prescribed um, with, you know, that come with Western feminine sexuality. And, yeah, I hadn't found much in the literature on this. Mm. Um, there hadn't been much research done on this kind of thing before, so it was quite fascinating for me to go, well, what's actually going on here for these girls and how, you know, how does this work when it comes to the relationship to their sexual subjectivity? Mm. And, you know, I really do, I, I ended up explaining it as being a real kind of, uh, resistance to the norms and them like carving out with, within the bounds of, of their the agency available to them, mm. carving out this kind of sacred space for themselves where they would like, okay, well, within this period of time, all bets are off. I'm going yeah. nuts, you know, screw the rules, screw what people think of me. And a lot of the time it was off the back of something that had you know, a relationship that had ended really badly or mm-hmm. a, a death or something quite significant in their life that seemed to somehow give them permission mm. to um, grant themselves this this window of, of t- sexual adventurism, mm-hmm. I guess is the, is the word, in, um, in their life. And, you know, and for some of them it was just a little blip on the radar. Like for Chloe, it was just this crazy month following another long-term relationship ending and she says, I went crazy. I'm a serial monogamous. I'm shocking, but I went crazy for a month. I had random sex with a guy in a pub that was awesome. I had random threesomes with my best friend and another guy. Mm. I just totally went off. I went out. I took charge of my life and it was fantastic. I did not practice safe sex, which was very naughty, and I was lucky in that. I mean... When I say I went wild, I maybe had sex six times in that month, but for someone who'd been in monogamous relationships for four and a half years, that's pretty wild. Mm. I was having sex publicly with guys whose names I didn't even know, lesbian encounters, all sorts of things. So that was one of one of their stories. Mm. Um, but Holly's story, um, where is it? Yeah, there was a lot of talk about, you know, just I'm just going to go and fuck someone and not care about it. There was this sense of real kind of freedom and not not overthinking it, um, which makes sense when you kind of dig into just how, I guess, overbearing those norms and that stigma had been for these, for, for young women. Um, but I wanted to talk about Holly's rampage. So she's the one that had done that all that work to kind of be the ultimate girlfriend. Mm. Um, so she sort of actually talks about cycling in and out of these rampage periods consistently, even mm. up until the time that I was interviewing her. It wasn't something that she had just done at a particular point. Um, and do, do you want me to read a little bit about um, of Holly's story? Yeah, sure. Um, so Holly's rampage could also be just characterized as experimental and risky, perhaps more resistant than the others. While she still frames her rampage temporarily, um, it differs. Oh yeah, I've already talked about that. So 
She joined an online dating site for creative young hipsters. Um, That's in quote marks. Mm -hmm. And she started seeing guys casually and she called it her man journey, which has carried on until just recently. She said it was a succession of dudes that I wasn't overly interested in, just kind of saw quite frequently. Um, Holly's practices of self in this period align with that kind of liberated contemporary up for it woman. She hooks up with girls if she feels like it. She sleeps with a succession of guys when she feels like it. None of them she cares about. She knows where her G-spot is and keeps photo trophies of all the men she has had sex with. Um, However, it also significantly deviates from that, I guess, contemporary up for it um, version of female sexuality which is often, you know, tied to a sense of style and taste and, you know, there's a, like a, a bourgeois um, aspect to it where it's quite classy still, whereas Holly said that, you know, she did not fit such chic and classy descriptions and she said her first date, I met this guy, it was the first guy, I met him, a stranger off the internet, drunk in a park at like 1am in the morning I was so afraid. I thought if I if I go shit-faced and it's at some park at 1am, it's not even a thing, so it'll be fine. It was like a way for me to control it and show how little I cared. He was a really cool guy and I was actually like, oh, no, shit, this guy's actually really cool. And we got back to my house. We had unprotected sex, which was terrible. Again, I mean, I met a stranger in a park, not my finest. Um, and then she goes on to say that, She had sex with an absolute pretentious jerk who was a boring dickbag. She was drunk. She described the experience as terrible, the worst sex she's ever had. Um, But she said, interestingly enough, I felt really in control in that situation. She had sex with a guy who was obsessed with armpit hair. Um, There were a couple of encounters that ended with her climbing out of bedroom windows in the early hour of the morning and walking to the train station barefoot in last last night's clothes. Then there was the bisexual guy who she went on a date with one evening, a Tuesday night, and they ended up giving each other oral sex in public on a bridge at 11 o'clock. Um, you know, so you get the idea that that her rampage is not this classy, chic, you know, thing that would be in Sex and the City, for example. Yeah. It's actually, yeah, it's it's a very resistant identity, I would say. It's a it's a big F you to the norms that had, considering this is a girl who had just a couple of years before been the ultimate heteronormative girlfriend. Right. You know, this is quite resistant. So, And it's not even kind yeah. of, a, it's not even a quest in search of uh, like sexual pleasure necessarily, is it? It's like a quest in search of no. herself. It's uh, it's yeah. it's uh, to have yeah, this thing, this nebulous idea we talk about with agency and um, yeah, being Exploring the subject the and not the object. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Exploring really the edges of, of herself. Yeah, I agree. Well, I hope you've been enjoying this conversation so far. If you'd like to hear the full thing, it's another twenty minutes or so. Please sign up to my Patreon, patreon.com forward slash culture sex relationships. You get some bonus content, some early shows, access to our Discord server where you can discuss the show and meet fellow listeners. Crucially, you will also be supporting the show. I'm a freelance sex and relationships educator and I don't get any other funding to make this show. So this is my job. Any contribution from just £1 a month will be paying me to make the show. 
If I get more funding, I can make more shows. It's as simple as that. So that's patreon.com forward slash culture sex relationships. Thank you very much. Bye then. Bye.